We're continuing in this series on the Sermon on the Mount, just exploring this teaching that we find in the Gospel of Matthew. For those who may not have been here in previous weeks, the Sermon on the Mount is a set of teachings that we find in one of the four biographical accounts of the life of Jesus in the Bible. And we might think of the Sermon on the Mount as a mold in which Jesus is hoping to imprint and impress and form his disciples and the people who would follow him by this way of life. But if we pull back just for a brief second here before we jump into our text, from the nuances of the sermon, we discover a couple important truths that we need to be reminded of each time that we read this text. Is that the Sermon on the Mount serves as a declaration that there is a God who is revealed to us in the person of Jesus. We have to always remember that God is a God who reveals himself in Jesus. And one of the things we believe is that God reveals the fullness of his character in and through Jesus. And when we hear the Sermon on the Mount spoken to us and spoken over us, what we're hearing are the very words of God. This isn't just some book that we're reading. This isn't just some teaching that somebody said a long time ago. This is the divine word of God that comes to us. And sometimes it's easy to forget that, that God speaks to us in new and fresh ways through these ancient words. But as Jesus is offering the world this sermon, these instructions for those who would follow him, that serves as a reminder that life has an orderliness to it, that life has a design to it. And this design is framed by love and justice and mercy and compassion and community and goodness. And this God, this creator God who speaks to us and reveals himself through Jesus is wanting and yearning for you to live into the orderliness and the goodness that is the life he meant for you to live. The sermon is a reminder that the creator God is for us, right? And he is for our thriving in our lives. These are not just religious duties that we're talking about. It's the divine creator who's sort of directing and cultivating within us full life that we might experience it anew. Amen, amen. We're going to read this morning from Matthew 6, verses 1 through 6, and then we're going to jump down, we're going to skip verses 7 through 15, and we're going to jump down to verse 16 and read through 18. We're not doing this because I don't like the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is a great thing. Um, We'll actually be doing a sermon series on prayer in the fall, but I want you to see as we read our text this morning that there's a sort of structure to the teachings of Jesus, And the Lord's Prayer, God bless it, is sort of an interruption to the sort of rhetorical structure of this teaching. And so, let's read together Matthew 6, 1 through 6, and then 16 through 18. Jesus teaches us, the divine word of God teaches us this. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, 
they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Jump down to verse 16. And when you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This is the word of God for the people of God. Father, give us ears to hear your word anew this day that we might look more and more like the disciples that you have called us to be and in so doing discover full life. Amen and amen. 192. 192. That's the most amount of likes that I have received on an Instagram photo. If you think there's something wrong with me for knowing that, you might be absolutely right. But it actually took me less than 60 seconds to find the post because I knew exactly which one it was. It was the first picture I ever posted of Levi. There he is. Man, where does the time go? If I could get eight of you onto my Instagram page and give me a like, I'll get to that 200 mark. So I'm just kidding. You don't have to do that. Unless you are willing to do it, then yeah, you can do it. That'd be great. That would be great. But pictures of Levi generally get more likes than any of my other posts. This one is one of my favorites that I've posted of Levi. This was the day, February 18th, 2016, I believe, uh, was the first time that Levi spoke. And he said, dad, 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 dad. I like showing pictures like these to the world and to my friends and family, adorable little snapshots into what my life and our family is like, a sort of behind-the-scenes look to the world of how we are living. And though this is what most of you might see on my social media posts, um, so much of our life as parents looks a little bit more like this. Yes, we don't like to post these photos because it doesn't give the image that we want to give. It's awesome. We live in a world that has a large public space. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Snapchat. These are all platforms that we can use to brand our lives, revealing our opinions and visually displaying uh, how delightful our lives are in the world. And these offer us the opportunity to tell a life story of sorts that we want people to think is our own. And as parents, Paige and I, we we wrestle with this and grapple with this and think about how this practice of sharing these photos and talking about Levi's life is shaping and forming him and perhaps maybe even cultivating within him a sense of needing to perform for the camera so that everything looks peachy on the outside. These platforms that in and of themselves, they're not an evil thing, they're not a bad thing. I obviously participate in them, but they can empower and magnify a human inclination that all of us have to manicure a pristine public image that stands potentially in contrast with our true sense of identity. And what we discover in our text this morning is that this is not a modern problem that humans are wrestling with. 
This is a very ancient problem that humans have yet to completely sort out. See, the word hypocrite is no more nicer to use today in our world as it was in Jesus' day. In fact, there may be no greater insult that you can direct at a Christian or any other person than the word hypocrite. Disingenuous, inauthentic, phony, duplicitous, insincere. These are all attributes that are summarized in the single word hypocrite. In the first century when Matthew lived, actors in the theater were known as hypocrites. These were stage actors acting out the parts of a character in a play. And it was custom for Greek and Roman acts to, or actors to speak while wearing painted masks. And these are not sort of like paper-thin masks that you might hold up in front of your face. They're large ceramic masks that would sort of encaps, encapsulate your entire head. I don't know if that's the right word. But they even used at times in these masks mechanical devices that would sort of augment or change their voice so that this character had this sort of mask and this voice and this character had this mask and this voice. They were not being themselves in the public's eye. They were only impersonating a character. And this, this is the word that Jesus uses to describe religious actors who publicly play the part of devout devotee to the divine. I like that alliteration, that's good, huh? In life, the hypocrite is a person who masks his or her real self when he or she plays a part to capture the undivided attention of his or her audience. Matthew's gospel addresses religious people who are using acts of worship as a form of pretentious play acting. Or as one preacher put it, and I love this, in the name of God, they are seeking to make a name for themselves. In the name of God, they are seeking to make a name for themselves. They post pictures of the charitable organizations that they financially contribute to. Look at this organization that I love to support financially. They pray endless prayers in worship services and small group gatherings. We've all been in those gatherings, right, where everyone starts like opening their eyes and looking around like, this is going a long time. (laughs) Maybe you do that when I pray. Sorry, sorry. They inform you of how their current spiritual discipline is shaping and influencing and forming their lives in new and fresh ways. Oh man, I've been fasting for like three days and it's been awesome. You just have to share it. Nobody asked, but they share it. Their publicly professed love for God and the poor is nothing more than an actor's costume or mask designed to cover their hidden desire for human praise. The hypocrite exchanges the reward of God for the praises of people. They do not give to the poor, they buy a reputation. They do not petition God in prayer, they impress their peers with eloquence. They do not seek the approval of God, they seek the approval of their neighbors instead. And Jesus knew that this self-centered attempt to impress others with our own self-righteousness will always contaminate our acts of piety and charity before God. It always taints your giving when you have self, selfish motivation. It always taints your prayers when you have selfish motivation. It always taints your spiritual discipline when you're doing it to impress people. You see, when we seek to win over the hearts of others by displaying our good deeds, we taint them with the chemical poison of self-promotion. And this is why Jesus instructs us in verse one of our text this morning, be careful 
be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. You see, if self-promotion, Jesus says, is the poison, secrecy is the antidote. Or in other words, and I love this phrase, is the secret of religion is religion in secret. If we're going to guard our hearts from the poison of self-promotion that leads to hypocrisy, we have to develop private practices that anchor us to faith that has integrity in the world. That is to say, we must take seriously and practice what Jesus instructs us here if we're to guard our faith from floating into the waters of hypocrisy. We must give generously to the poor in private. We must pray brief prayers in private. We must exercise spiritual disciplines in private. Engaging in these practices cultivates within us a faith that has integrity, that's lived for God alone. There are three things that I think happen when we engage in this privately lived faith. The first is this, practicing private faith reveals our heart. Practicing private faith reveals our heart. Specifically, it reveals our heart to our own selves, God as it turns out, and Jesus shares with us, already knows our heart. The problem is we often don't know our own hearts. Have you ever seen um, adults? <laughs> I might be guilty of this at times. Have you ever seen adults that use kids to cultivate their own public image a little bit? Uh, maybe a youth sports coach who has sort of excessive emotional investment into the win-loss record of his seven-year-old baseball team. You know, the kind of coach that screams at grade school-aged children for making mistakes and for losing. Or the middle-aged man or woman who gets way too excited in their celebration of seven-year-olds winning a baseball game at their local park. (laughs) Or maybe you know a parent who gets exceedingly angry at a child when they misbehave in public. You see them sometimes in parks or in supermarkets or in restaurants, that you see their embarrassment and their humiliation begin to express itself in a raised voice and aggressive discipline. My favorite, I I experienced this yesterday at a park that we were at actually, is the really aggressive whisper that parents do to their kids. Just wait till we get home. You better knock it off, right? It's like, no, we can still hear you. There's no whisper there, right? But if you ask the crazy sports coach, like, why do you get so upset about losing and mistakes? They probably would respond with something like, I just want the team to reach their potential. If you ask the irate parent what motivates their aggression and public discipline, they might say something like, I just want them to behave properly in public. Nobody, nobody readily admits The winning and losing of this sports team makes me feel like people will see me as a bad or good coach. Nobody says that. Nobody quickly confesses my child's poor behavior makes me feel like strangers think that I'm a bad parent. We don't actually articulate that. But it is sometimes the case that the root concern for coaches and parents is not the kids. It's their public persona. What will people think of me? If my kids behave this way or lose this game, their heart's motivation is hidden from them. And this is true of the kind of hypocrisy that Jesus is talking about in our passage this morning. 
You see, we often think of hypocrites as people who sort of have a self-awareness of what they're doing in their lives. We think that they intentionally deceive and fake out others to play some sort of role in front of us. But hypocrisy functions a lot more subtly than that in the world. The hypocrisy that Jesus speaks against is characterized by self-deceit. That is, the hypocrite doesn't know that they're a hypocrite. There is no conspiracy. There's no plot to deceive everybody. There's no conscious attempt to fool their church community. The hypocrite lacks awareness of their motivations and their desires. They may not even be aware that they long for the praises of people over the approval of God. And the exercise of private faith has the potential to bring to the surface our real desires to our own minds. It requires us to consider and think about important questions like this. Why am I doing this? Why am I giving to this cause truly? Can I do it privately where nobody sees? Or do I always have to kind of sneak a comment into somebody about what, what it is that I'm doing here? We have to ask, who is watching me? Who is watching me display my acts of piety that might kind of cultivate externally my reputation in the public? What about this action actually gives me pleasure? Do I actually enjoy giving to the poor? Do I actually enjoy communicating and communion with God? Or do I just like looking the part of the good Christian? It's an honest wrestling with these questions in private that we can know our hearts and present them honestly before God. But this type of introspection can only be done privately if it is to be done honestly. Private faith reveals our heart to ourselves. The second thing that private faith does is it connects us to God. Private faith connects us to God. There are some pictures that we will not show you this morning that Paige and I take of our son that we do not post or share publicly. Some of these are because they're humiliating and embarrassing and we look like maybe, I don't know, what we don't want to look like to all of you. Other times we have said to each other, this one is just for us. This one's just for us, mom and dad. We have a few videos like that that we watch like every night, (laughs) shamelessly. This one's just for us, these moments. And there's something about acts shared in privacy that can be particularly bonding the youth group experienced this at camp just a month or so ago. So when they went away from their friends, away from us, and they experienced something that only they could experience together. It forms and bonds them into a new kind of group. Children experience this every time they make a secret club that requires a secret password that adults don't know. There's intimacy that's cultivated in that kind of friendship. And this too is true between us and God. You will often hear Christians talk about having and developing a personal relationship with the divine, with God. See, we believe that you can personally know God. This relationship, though, must be cultivated and developed in private as well as public places. Can you imagine if Paige and I only talked to each other when we were out here in public to impress all of you? You see, we do this in secret giving to the poor as Christians, not letting our left hand know what our right hand is doing. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25, in fact, he says, when you give to the poor, 
you're actually giving to me. And when we give in privacy to the poor, we actually just have this intimate moment in which we are caring for and tending to Jesus. In the Lord's Prayer, we're reminded that God knows our needs already. We don't need to impress him with long-winded, theologically sound, fancy, biblical words or public proclamations. God knows your needs already. The brief prayer is in of itself an expression that your trust that God already knows. The Father already knows. It's an expression that the unseen God of the universe already sees you and already knows your needs. He merely longs for you just to share them with him. See, practices of private faith connect us to God. There's a third thing that happens. The practice of private faith ends with divine reward. The practice of private faith ends with divine reward. In his book, The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis writes this. This is so good. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offering of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. We become much too satisfied to receive the praises and affirmations of people when the greater reward is the praise and affirmation of God. It's hard to know exactly in our text this morning what the, quote, reward that God gives his disciples is, but reward in exchange for righteousness is a theme that permeates the whole gospel of Matthew in a very unique way. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, the reward is described as God's present and future blessing to his disciples. Towards the end of Matthew's gospel, Jesus tells this parable of a servant who is faithful and obedient to their master. And the story ends with the master saying to the servant, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Enter into the joy of God. The divine reward is a promise to those who would follow Jesus that we can enter into the eternal joy that comes from him alone. Like the child who fills their stomach with Doritos, leaving no room for the delicious steak prepared for them, or salad if you are a vegan or vegetarian, so too we fill our appetites with the rewards of approval from people rather than approval from God. Have greater desire, church. Satisfy it in the exercising of your private faith. The exercise of religion in secret or private faith, as I've called it this morning, is not, let me be very clear, to displace public expressions of faith. That is, I'm not saying that we should displace public expressions of faith, like don't come to church on Sundays because this other thing is way more important. The exercise of private faith, giving charitably on your own, praying privately on your own, exercising spiritual disciplines on your own, it serves as an anchor that tethers all of our faith to God so that we don't drift into the waters of self-promotion. Only when we have this kind of faith, a faith that seeks God's approval and reward 
Can we be salt and light in the world? In The Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes it this way. I love this too. Our task to keep on following is simply to keep on following, looking only to our leader who goes on before, taking no notice of ourselves or of what we are doing. We must be unaware of our own righteousness and see it only insofar as we look unto Jesus. The Christian is a light unto the world, not because of any quality of his own, but only because he follows Christ and looks solely to him. That is, when our hearts are solely desiring to follow Jesus, seeking his reward, we do begin to be and do the things that make us salt and light in the world. Uh, I didn't ask for this permission to share this story, Scott, but I'm gonna share it anyway. Sorry, Natalie. Um, One of the things about moving from Santa Barbara to Ventura was that on a very personal level, we feel like we lack a sense of community and belonging. We lack friendships. We lack other people to hang out with. These are sort of hidden things that when we come, you don't really think about, or maybe you all don't think about, that we just live on the east end and we don't know anybody, and it's hard. It takes years to cultivate those types of friendships and connecting. A few weeks ago, Scott and Natalie like randomly texted us on a Sunday afternoon, like, hey, you guys want to, you know, play some board games and eat dinner together? And we were like, how do we say yes without sounding desperate, right? (laughs) How do we do this? We just want friends. (laughs) We didn't have anything to prepare. Like, we have some leftover tri-tip from the youth fundraiser event. We'll bring it over. We had some leftovers. We'll do our leftovers. There's nothing quite sort of communal and bonding than eating leftovers together. That's when you know you've arrived, that true friendship. It's like we don't have to impress anybody. We'll just all sort of combine our meals together. And when they left that, that, that evening, Paige and I were talking about like, oh, what an oasis for us. What, what a nice thing to have people in our community that just were thinking about us and extending themselves to us in kindness and in love. And if you ask Scott and Natalie, I imagine they would tell you like, it didn't seem like a big deal to us. It didn't seem like a big deal. We didn't know that we were like making you feel like affirmed and connected to this place and these people in such a powerful way for you personally. They would have no clue that was the impact that they were having on our lives in that moment. And yet, this is what following Jesus does in the world. As we simply just try and be the people that Jesus is calling us to be, we begin to... lacking even awareness of what it is that we're doing, make an impact in people's lives. Does that make sense? I should have articulated that better, but we're totally unaware of the goodness that we're extending into the world because we're just so focused on Jesus. And this is what it looks like for people in the church to be salt and light in the world. So we're so committed to following Jesus, we're totally unaware of all the good things that we're doing. It's just how we are as disciples. This is just normal to us. And we bring the kingdom of God into the world as we walk and cultivate this kind of faith in our lives. Because one of the beautiful things about Scott and Natalie just coming over like that is they are not trying to impress us. They don't care if we're impressed by them or anything like that. They can just serve and follow Jesus and in so doing allow the love of God be extended into our home and to our son. That changes everything for us in terms of community. I want to be this kind of church 
I want to be this kind of disciple of Jesus. Like, think about meaningful mentors that you've had in your life. Paige and I were just having this conversation about a mentor and a family that was in our lives that we got to connect with a couple months ago. Every time I leave an interaction with them, I'm like, man, those are some good people. Those are good folk. Those are committed followers of Jesus. And they have no idea the impact that they're making in our lives. They're just being themselves as they follow Jesus, and it changes everything in the world that they live in. I want to be that kind of follower of Jesus. Developing this kind of spirituality, if we're going to do this church, to have this faith that is a gift to the world, whether we know it or not, a faith that is salt and light in it, it requires us to develop this private practice of faith in the world. As we cultivate that, not for the show of people, but to glorify God, we actually become the people of God and the light in the world. Amen? Let's use our faith not to seek personal gain, but as a gift to the world. Let's pray. Father, we want to be people who are salt and light in the world. We want to be people who extend your goodness and love and grace in ways that we're totally unaware of, but you see, and the world experiences. And so we ask, God, that you would cultivate within us a single-mindedness to seek the approval of Jesus And as we do, would you cultivate within us a faith that impacts the world by bringing the kingdom of God into it. May you receive the glory and honor for it. It's your son Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.